This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. so excited about today's guest, David Gillespie. He's been a longtime hero of mine since I reckon it was about oh, seven or eight years ago we toured together, both being health authors, and he has a lot of books. This guy's written a truckload of books, but he did quite a lot on health, so uh, Sweet Poison, Toxic Oils, Eat Real Food, all phenomenal books. But we both toured together, and I remember on the first night of the tour, I was like, oh, because he's straight down the line, he's real, he's honest, he's one of the smartest people I know and he's so willing to share his smarts. He's got a brand new book out called Brain Reset. Now, we got so enthralled in combo that we've turned this episode into a two-part episode. So you're going to get part one today. And that's kind of like the real health kind of stuff. We talk about another one of his great books called Taming Toxic People. It's all about non-criminal psychopaths and what to do when you encounter them. So, so, so fascinating. The truth is we've probably all got a psychopath in our lives. Uh, And I just deep dive on that. So we've had to do this in two parts. So part one today, part two next Monday, and part two is when we really get into his new book, Brain Reset, which is all about addiction, uh, depression, anxiety, and really kind of like how our brain works. So interesting. I'm a mega fan of David Gillespie. And you know what? At the end of this chat, I think you will be too. Big love. David Gillespie. Honour, my friend, to have you on this podcast. How long have we been talking about it? A few months now. Ah, at least, at least. Right. Since I moved to Byron, you were the top of my, I was like, I've got to get to Brizzy. I've got, and I've made it here, a three-hour journey, by the way. I've made it. In a thunderstorm. (laughs) This is true. So for people listening, you are a lawyer. You are, is this book we're about to talk about today your 12th or 13th? I can't figure it out. I'm not sure. Um, I would have, if someone had asked me, I would have said 11th, but I'm not certain. So I thought, I don't know. Okay, so we'll go with 11th, 12th or 13th. Yeah, one of those. You are a researcher and you are such an engaging speaker. And I think you and I met on a speaking circuit when we really got to know one another. Yeah, I think uh, when we were both writing uh, things about food. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. So quite a long time ago now. Do you know, if I do an interview as a guest, often someone will say, all right, who's your favourite author? And I'll be like, David Gillespie, (laughs) hands down. And that was before you started writing more about psychology and the human brain, which is one of my favourite topics. Like, I'm just pumped to be talking to you today. But it was because of the way that you, I love the way that you write so honestly and it feels like we're just having a combo Hmm. when you write like your tone is straight down the line quite dry and funny (laughs) wouldn't you say (laughs) oh look it's interesting one of my kids said to me the other day my kids generally don't uh read the things that i write uh, but one of them accidentally picked up a copy of team brain and started reading it and 
Um, she said, uh, it's just like having you in the room. I can imagine you saying exactly these things exactly this way. Definitely. Yeah. As I was reading, especially um, Taming Toxic People, that I really want to dive in today. Although we need to talk about Brain Reset, which mm. is officially available now, yes. even though we're recording it a little bit in the lead up because I just had to see you in real life. Um, yeah, I think my favourite thing about when I read this, and for anyone listening, if you enjoy this podcast, know that when you pick up any one of the plethora of David's books, it'll feel like this, like it's going to be straight, honest, I would just say your viewpoint from yes. what you have, from everything that you've researched. And remembering that my viewpoint amounts to nothing in a sense uh, in that because I'm not an expert in any of the things I write about, uh, everything I say has to be backed up with evidence. And yeah. that's why my books are so heavily fact-checked, so heavily referenced. It's because I have a lawyer's habit of when I state a fact, I cite a reference. I love that though. I think that's, you can't go wrong. You can't get, um, yeah, you, and I love that even in reading all of your books, you'll have studies spanning from where an idea first originated from yes. to present day stuff, which I love. Okay, so I want to go back to the start for a, for a little bit because you taught me so much about my own health and I'm a qualified nutritionist. <laughs> And what you taught me was that although I was eating all these healthy foods, I was still using maple syrup and a lot of um, healthier alternatives of sweeteners in my diet, but it was still a diet that was very heavy in sugars. Yeah. Now, your book, Sweet Poison, made your best-selling author <laughs> all over the world. Yes. Talk to me about the idea of that. Not necessarily the idea of it, but it happened because you just tried to add on yourself, right? Well, that's right. I, I'd spent most of my life to that point uh, getting fatter and fatter and fatter like most Australians and uh, I tried stuff that uh, I heard on the radio or saw on television or I read about in the paper, you know, like a, a low-carb diet or a uh, broccoli diet or a soup diet or a walking the dog diet and all of those sorts of things all kind of work. Um, to varying degrees for as long as your willpower holds out, right. uh, which in my case was about two weeks generally. And a lot of people's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and then any weight that I'd lost came straight back on. Uh, so I thought this just doesn't make sense. Uh, it can't be the case that we've had a sudden failure of willpower in the latter half of the 20th century or early part of the 21st century and uh, our population is now stuffed because of it. Uh, I didn't buy that. I said, I thought there has to be a biochemical explanation for what's going on uh, and it is likely to be in what we're shoving in our mouths uh, because that that is everything essentially when it comes to your weight. And so I started looking at what the science did tell us about it. And what I quickly discovered was that most of what we were told about what makes us fat was nonsense. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with the amount of fat that you consume any more than eating cucumbers will make you green. It, <laughs> yes. it, does, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and there's no science that backs it up, even less science to back up that exercising will make you thin. Uh, so... What I did find was that there was a different strain of research that had been going since the start of nutrition as a profession uh, in the early 1950s uh, that said the real cause was sugar. Uh, and uh, a lot of that research had made some pretty big guesses because we didn't know a lot about human metabolism. We didn't know many of the hormones involved. But over the decades, that re those research holes had been filled in. And by the time I was writing Sweet Poison, the story was pretty complete, mm. which was, yes, it was sugar that makes us fat, 
because it disrupts our appetite control system. So it makes us fat by making us eat more of everything. Mm. Uh, and it also has some other really nasty metabolic side effects that lead to things like type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but that's what the research said. So I thought, well, look, if this is true, then all I've really got to do is stop eating sugar. Um, so I tried that. It was a lot easier said than done for two reasons. One, it's in everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't realise that. I thought, oh, oh, you know, I don't put sugar on my cereal, so I'm practically not eating sugar as it is. What I didn't realise is I didn't need to put sugar on my cereal because it was already a quart of sugar. Um, yeah. So... Even the healthy ones, uh, that's right. That's right. And, and there was stuff that we were being told was healthy, like orange juice or, in your case, uh, maple syrup, yeah. um, that was just as much sugar as anything else. Mm. So once you get down to the biochemistry of it, the body doesn't care where the sugar comes from. Uh, it's, it's all exactly the same. So once I'd sorted all of that out uh, and figured out how to live without eating sugar, which just meant eating a pie and chips without the sauce, yeah, <laughs> essentially. barbecue sauce, half sugar. That's right. And even normal sauce is a quarter sugar. Yeah. Uh, so once I get all that out, I had the other problem to overcome, which we'll maybe talk about a little bit later, which is that sugar is actually addictive. Yes. Um, which is, of course, why food manufacturers want it in their food. Uh, that bliss, it, <laughs> don't they call it that, that bliss, bliss point? point? Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's uh, easier to sell food that's addictive than food that isn't. Um, and that's why when you look at the history of food, manufacturers have always tried to include a little bit of addictive substance in there. You know, anything from cocaine. Um, Coca-Cola. In Coca-Cola. <laughs> through to uh, you know, all manner of addictive substances uh, have been added to food. And, and the one that they get away with at the moment, uh, caffeine uh, and sugar. Um, yeah. So anyway, the, looking at all of that, uh, I decided to apply it. Uh, when I did apply it, I lost 40 kilos. Mm. Um, it didn't turn me into Brad Pitt, um, as you can see. Uh, but it did mean that I stopped putting on weight. Yeah. And I've stayed the same weight since, which is now, you know, 14 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, and that was something different for me. Uh, my whole life I'd had my, I was, it was just the way things went. My weight just kept going up all the time. Mm. <laughs> so, But so many people uh, can relate to that. Yeah. And and so I thought, well, I applied it, did it, it worked. Um, and a friend of mine said, look, you've really got to write this down because it's just so simple and you just got to say what you did. And I said, well, I just stopped eating sugar. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about all the stuff about identifying it and, yeah. and why you did it because he said people need to understand why this works. And uh, so I wrote it down and he then pestered a publisher until they decided to publish it. Oh, what a good mate. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So one thing that gets me, and you're probably going to shake your head when I say this, yes, last night when I was getting ingredients for dinner, I thought, oh, I'm just going to check that label of the dark chocolate yeah. that my boyfriend and I love to share. We always, um, it's 100 grams of a dark, nice, delicious lint chocolate with some, we always put raspberries with it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, surely this is going to be low sugar. It's dark chocolate, mm -hmm. you know, and the colour is really like, and it's, and I picked up a 100 gram thing of chocolate, 49 grams 
of sugar. Yes. Uh, well, that's, you know, that's the thing they don't say is when they, even when they say you know, they sell something like 60% cocoa yeah. chocolate, which is a dark chocolate, or even 70%. It was 70. Yeah. What they don't tell you is that the other 30% is the sugar. <laughs> so, Mental. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of marketing in this. And even like uh, being a nutritionist in all my other books when you and I were working mm. together would have like raw vegan mm. cheesecakes. And I, again, I, f- I found my favourite little raw vegan treat that I buy from the health foods where I'm craving, something I picked up and I was like, <gasps> 19.9 grams of sugar. Well, often uh, particularly vegetarian and vegan foods are very, very high in yeah. sugar, um, mostly because they don't taste that good. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and the only way to make them taste better is to put a lot of sugar in them. Now, it might have all sorts of fancy names, but it's still sugar as far as your biochemistry oh, is Oh, my favourite recent one is like coconut nectar blossom. <laughs> Lovely. Right. And it's just basically it's the sugar, sh- sugar part yeah, of yeah, coconut, that's, right? that's right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so another thing that I, like, I've learned so much off you, like I said, because I just thought, oh, I was very hippie mung bean, let's just, you know, eat as many natural things as we can. But mm. you're right, you'd have to add a lot of dates or dates, maple syrup. Dates is a big one. So you see a lot of dates being added to recipes. Um, and that's because they are very high in sugar. Yeah. And that's just a natural way of saying sugar. And the... When I, like, deep dive you and your books, it's really breaking down the fructose element that's the, that's that's the right. danger. So, the, yeah, so sugar is two molecules, yeah. glucose and fructose, and it's the fructose part of it is the dangerous part. Yeah. Uh, glucose is in everything. Every carbohydrate we eat is glucose. Um, it, 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 we are well adapted to metabolising that efficiently. And it's not that sweet, right? It's, it's not that sweet. Yeah. Um, it's less than half as sweet as as. Table sugar. Yeah. The, the, the sweet half of sugar is fructose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what makes sugar sweet. And when you put it in, in pure form, so, so just by adding, uh, you know, pure fructose sugar or things that are very high in fructose like dates, then it makes the thing even sweeter. Yeah. Um, so, but it's the dangerous bit because we are not adapted to metabolise it. We don't have mechanisms to control our intake of it and it messes up our appetite control, which makes us eat more of everything, not just more fructose. So interesting. Mm. I read when you initially came off sugar, the first couple of weeks mm. were really tricky and yeah. you had to have, was it end up like being diet soft drinks to get you through right. that? So, I, yeah, I used a sort of a, a crutch, I guess. And, yeah. and, you know, as I read further and wrote further about addiction later on, it's clear what was going on there is I was essentially using a nicotine patch for sugar. Yeah. <laughs> so... Well, yeah. I use monk fruit and stevia, which are like the healthy, natural yeah. versions of... Same deal. Exactly yeah. the same deal. Because yeah. I always learned that, and I notice when I've really cut, honestly cut sugar out, like mm. I'm talking proper, no yeah, yeah. BS, no, um, you'll eat a carrot or a yeah. piece of pumpkin and it will taste sweet to you yeah. your taste buds, you really do get used to being sugar-free. Oh, absolutely. And bananas taste like extremely sweet yeah. treats, um, which a person eating sugar would say is rubbish, that they don't find bananas particularly sweet. Yeah, uh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So interesting. Okay, we've got so much to cover. Yes. So I just, I've got my little six pages of notes here. <laughs> Can we quickly touch on toxic oils? Because I loved sure. that book. Yeah. You've got a few that touch on it. You've got the Big Fat Lies book too, don't you? So Big Fat Lies started it, then Toxic Oils is applying some of the things in Big Fat Lies, and then there's been a rewrite of Toxic Oils more recently uh, called The Good Fat Guide. Yeah. Um, all of it is summarised well, I think, 
in my favourite of that series of books, which is Eat Real Food Cookbook. I and love it. I've got it. I looked at it on the weekend. So good. It's not really a cookbook. I mean, it does have cooking in it, mm-hmm. um, but the first half of it is really a summary of everything I've said in all my writing about sugar and seed oils. So the dangerous thing about seed oils, and let's just be really clear what a seed oil is. It's what it sounds like. It, it, it comes from a seed. Uh, it's often described on labels as vegetable oil. Uh, no vegetables were harmed in the creation of uh, seed oils. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get oil from a vegetable. Uh, so seed oils are extracted from seeds. So they're things like canola oil, uh, soybean Soy. oil, um, safflower oil, sunflower oil, those sorts of things are all seed oils. Um, they're different from legume oils um, and fruit oils. So fruit oils, for example, are coconut oil, uh, olive, olive oil, yeah, um, so even palm kernel oil. So yeah. fruit oils tend to be quite a lot higher in saturated and monounsaturated mm-hmm. fats and very low in the dangerous part of seed oils, which is omega-6 polyunsaturates. That can go rancid like that, right? That's right, in a heartbeat, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is why when seed oils are sold as a solid, like margarine, they have to be full of antioxidant uh, and, and all manner of things to stop them going rancid. Uh, and aren't they dyed and stuff as well? Like they'd be black of course. in the Well, process. I don't know what colour they'd be normally, but they certainly wouldn't be yellow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And they certainly wouldn't taste like butter. Um, yeah. So they have flavouring and all that sort of stuff mm. in them. Uh, the the reason it's important is omega-6 fats, uh, we need them in our diet. They run our immune system. They are really critically important to a bunch of functions in the way our brains work uh, and the way our eyes work and, and so on. So we need an amount. We need about one and a half grams a day of omega-6 fats, just as we do of omega-3 fats, about one and a half grams a day. Um, we'd get that just from eating normal food. Just yeah. normal, real food, we'd get that. Yeah. One and a half grams is not much. Um, uh, but uh, when we fill our entire diet with them, which is what processed food does, so omega-6 is seed oils are uh, in everything that's in a package. Um, if you have a look at the label and you see a large amount of polyunsaturated fat mm-hmm. or one of those seed oils listed in the ingredients or just vegetable oils listed in the ingredients, then there's a lot of that stuff in the food, mm. even in foods that you wouldn't expect to see them in at all. So, for example, you'll see things like uh, Danish feta made from seed oil. You'll see chocolates made from seed yeah, oil. Seed, yeah, chockies are a big one, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, and you wouldn't expect, you would expect those things to have, say, cows or, or goat's milk as the fat source or, or you know, or, or cocoa butter as the fat source. But because these things are very, very cheap, manufacturers are always looking for a way to save a few cents. Uh, so an example of that, in bread, for example, if you take the olive oil, uh, which is a normal part of a bread recipe, uh, or lard, and, and substitute in a seed oil, like canola oil, uh, you will save 16 cents a loaf. Now, 16 cents a loaf doesn't sound like much, but it's a high-volume market, and it amounts to about $100 million a year in the Australian bread market. So those things are done all throughout the supermarket, which means that almost everything you buy now is full of seed oils. That matters because the highly oxidizable state of omega-6 fat, once it enters the body, significantly increases the likelihood of cancer. Um, Don't our cells even, like, absorb it in? That's right. So they become part of the the cell wall, Mm. um, and because they're so reactive, they massively increase oxidation of the cells, uh, which is the first step towards cancer. So as the cell walls oxidise, it can ultimately cause damage to DNA. Um, So 
That's why it matters. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of other reasons why it matters. There's a cascade of disease states. None of them are good uh, and all of them are cumulative. So unlike with sugar where you can just decide, well, I'm going to stop eating sugar and then your weight will start going backwards, your risk for type 2 diabetes will start going backwards, your heart, blood pressure will start going backwards, everything will be starting to be fine mm-hmm. as long as you haven't damaged the relevant organs beyond repair. With seed oils, it's less clear that it can be repaired by just stopping Mm. Um, so that's why I think that's the much more dangerous topic. Much harder to explain, much harder to understand, but much more dangerous. No, you nailed that. You explained <laughs> well. So uh, David's family at home, What? Do, so I imagine you use butter? Yep. Olive oil? Uh, yeah, occasionally. Uh, we'd use olive oil for pan frying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. My boyfriend's Italian, so yeah. we have a lot of olive oil. I imagine you'd be fine with coconut oil? No, uh, we fry, fry with um, uh, rendered, rendered beef fat. Uh, so it's sold in the supermarket as super fry. Really? Yeah, so big blocks of it's in red elf oil. Oh, really? Yeah, big 500-gram cube of it. Wow. You get four of those, put them in a pot, you got enough to do yourself a set of chips. Oh, yeah, I love some <laughs> chips. Do you remember I worked for a burger company when yeah. we met and, and I was like, oh, you'd love it. It's got zucchini yeah. chips. It's really low sugar and you, was like, you were like, um. Talk to me when the oils have changed. That's right. Do you remember? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> one of my, fa- I just want to talk one more thing about food, and I'm sure it'll mm. come up again when we talk about addiction. Um, but I don't know if you remember this. This is one of my favourite th- memories of you. We were all, you and I were speaking on a panel, and there were other health professionals yep. and authors on this panel. Yep. And we got asked a question by the audience, which is, can everyone say your favourite superfood? And it yes. went along the yeah. list. It went along the list. It was like people would say magnesium, goji berries, you know. I think Sarah Wilson said Brussels sprouts, which I love. <laughs> anyway, um, I, don't, I don't even remember what I said, but it got to you and yeah. I was sitting next to you and you just grabbed the microphone and you said, just eat an egg. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want some vitamin C, have it with broccoli. Yes. <laughs> but, like, I love that you have that very simple, clear, um, direct relationship when you talk about health and food. And I think we can get so bombarded, myself included, with, oh, I'll try I'll try intermittent fasting this week or mm. I'll try this or yes. I'll try or I'll add monk fruit to my <laughs> creation. And yeah. it's like, why not just simplify it? Yes. And and so that's a, getting back to that cookbook, the Eat Real Food cookbook. That's yeah. what the recipes in it do. So if you wanted to know what we eat, look at those recipes. That's what yeah. we eat. There it, is a burger and fries recipe. There is a burger there. and fries in there. <laughs> and and that's it. It's just really, really simple, really quick, normal, real food ingredients. Yes, yeah, so cool. Yeah. We're going to change channels yes. right now because you have written about so many different things. <laughs> and this book I haven't read, but I have watched a 60-minute um, interview with you about it. It's called Free School. Oh, yes, yes. And it's basically, you can please take over, but it's public versus private school yes. education here in Australia and you have set up a not-for-profit regarding yep. this as well. So can you share a little bit about the preface of that book? Okay, so what that what that book's about is whether or not paying for schooling makes any difference. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, spoiler, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I went to an all-girls <laughs> private Catholic school. Oh, I went to a Would've... private boys' school. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and but my kids don't. They go to a public yeah. school. Uh, and that's because what this book is an examination of is what the research says about what matters and what doesn't in education. And one of the things that don't matter is how much you pay for it in Australia. Uh, so uh, you... 
would then naturally think, well, what does matter? Uh, and that's what the rest of the book is about, uh, which is looking at the things that the research actually identify do have a real effect on outcomes for students in schools. I've heard you in an interview explain the difference between when you upgrade a plane ticket. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah, can you... Oh, yeah, yeah. That? So it's, it, it's if you think of schooling as a flight to London mm-hmm. um, and it has, say, three classes of travel, mm-hmm. you know, first class, business class and economy, um, you can pay a different amount for each ticket. You can have a first-class ticket with all the bells and whistles, mm. the sleeper bed, the flash food, all that sort of thing. Business not quite so nice, economy none of the above. Um, the The thing that makes it like education, though, is that when you all get to London, you get there at the same time. Mm. And it doesn't matter how many bells and whistles you had on the way. The point of it is to get to London. Mm. Uh, and that's how our school system works as well. What you're paying for is bells and whistles. You're paying for the first-class service, but you all get the same result. And over and over again, it's clear from the research that it really doesn't matter if you pay for it. Yes, if you pay for it, you might get a nicer tennis court. You might get equestrian stables. You might get a better pool. uh, And it's first-class, but you all get to London at the same time. And did I see in this interview you quote, like you priced out how much it would cost to go private with your... Yeah, so I worked it out. That, this is a few years ago now, like it's 2013. Uh, it worked out to one and a half million for to send my six kids to the school that I went to and its sister school. Um, now, it'd be a lot more than that now. But, uh, you know, you have to think, okay, well... Could I spend that one and a half million on something else for those kids? Yeah. Or something else entirely. Or the family. <laughs> that's another, right. Get a couple of holiday homes. And, <laughs> and so that's the approach that uh, my wife Lizzie and I have taken, which is we want them to experience as much as possible uh, while they, they can. And if they want to try, you know, I don't know, private horse riding lessons, then we let them try it. Um knowing that we haven't had to pay a stupid amount of money to send them to school. It's funny. I've had my dad in Byron last week mm. and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm back to Endeavour on adventures all over the yeah. world. And and I said, oh, I think, I'm, I think I'm a career girl, Dad. I don't know if I'll have kids. And he's like, well, you can kiss some of your dreams goodbye if you do because, like, they're really expensive. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you say you want a home in America or a home in yeah. Byron. He's like, you won't get that. And I was like, really? And he's like, yes, really. <laughs> so it's it's so fascinating to see. I think obviously because I don't have kids, I've been a little bit oblivious to the yeah. cost of what me and my brother would have been on both my parents who were single parents raising us as well separately. Yeah. But one thing that I, I was really intrigued by and I saw you speak about and write about is that single sex schools don't make a difference. No, no, they don't. There's no evidence that they make the slightest bit of difference Ah. um, to academic outcomes. Um, So they might make some difference to some social outcomes, particularly for girls. um, And that's increasingly the case, which is sort of something I discovered after I wrote that book when I was looking at the research in teen brain. Um, But for academic outcomes, they don't make any difference. Amazing. Oh, I'm just, <laughs> I said to my boyfriend on the way here, I was like, oh, I don't know if we're going to need this to be a two-part series. I've just got so many questions. So the next thing this kind of like brings me to is then you've been really passionate about this. You've set up your own not-for-profit as yes, well. Yeah. And that's also called Free, free Schools. schools. Uh, yeah. So what Free Schools is about is one of the things that came up in the research in Free Schools 
was that there are significant differences in levels of access to high-quality education yeah. in, in Australia. So it was all well and good for me to write a book that say that said identify schools that look like this and teachers that look like this, which is what I did. But all, at the end of the day, you know, if, if you don't live anywhere near a school that looks like what I describe, then you have very little chance of accessing it. Mm. Uh, and and so I decided to set up a charity called Free Schools, uh, which is a way to access the best teachers in Australia mm. for free for any kid. Uh, and it targets in particular rural and remote kids, but anyone can use it. There's no, mm. you know, you don't have to sign up or anything. You just go there and use it. It's freeschools.org. Um, but it... Uh, it has now over 7,500 lessons being delivered by Australian teachers in accordance with the curriculum, and that last bit is really, really important. You can go onto YouTube and you can look up lots of people teaching yeah. lots of stuff, um, but these ones are lined up with the Australian curriculum. So you can know, okay, I am in week three of year 11 mm-hmm. math, maths methods, mm-hmm. and what am I supposed to be learning? And you can go straight to that bit and you can see 10 teachers teaching that week's worth of work <gasps> And choose your adventure, you know, which, whichever one you find the most engaging uh, you listen to. Uh, we think it's a platform that has an enormous promise. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why kids don't engage with particular teachers, everything from the way the teacher delivers to just having no cultural identification with the person to whatever. You know, there's yeah. lots of different way, reasons why kids don't engage. And they may be having exactly that problem with the person who's trying to teach them in class in school. Mm. This isn't a substitute for that. It's a supplement. So that when you've come home and you thought, I really don't get that, here you can go on and you can just have a look at it and you can access it from a phone, from mm. your tablet, from a computer, whatever. It's completely free. That's incredible. <laughs> like if so if anyone's listening to this and is like, I want to get behind or I want to yeah. get involved, how can they help? Can they just? They're, well, there's a couple of ways they can do it. They can give us money. Yeah. Um, it is a charity. Yeah, totally. It's fully tax deductible. So if you just go to freeschool.org.au um, and uh, you, you'll probably put a link wherever yeah, you put I've this. I've already written here. That's great. And 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 just make a donation if that's what they wish to do. Uh, as I said, fully tax deductible. The other way they can do it is if they are a teacher, they can get in touch with us mm-hmm. and say, "I'd like to do some content for this." Mm-hmm. And we're always looking for new teachers. Uh, and uh, the other way they can do it is just get in touch with us and say, "Look, I'm not a teacher, uh, but I do want to help. Uh, I could uh, introduce this to my local school, right. you know, show my local teachers, and we have programs for volunteers to do that as well." Ah, oh, thank you for sharing yeah. that because that's reasonably new in your journey. Absolutely, that's yeah. brand new. Yeah, in the last year. Exciting! Yeah. You do not stop, my friend. <laughs> okay, so that brings me to Teen Brain. Yeah. Now. Again, this was a book I hadn't read, but then I got so fascinated by it because you've done a few podcasts on it. Yes. And I was like, holy smokes, this. <laughs> and then now reading The Brain Reset, your yeah. new book, it makes sense why girls are addicted to one thing and boys yes. are addicted to another thing. So let's quickly talk about um, Teen Brain. Yeah. And basically it, it you do really tackle the effects of screen time yes. and the addictions that come with that, right? That's right. So uh, it started from an observation that we seem to be in the middle of an epidemic of anxiety and depression in teenagers. Mm -hmm. Um, The numbers in this are getting very much worse very, very quickly. Uh, And it's really odd because the research, if you look at it, would say, well, where where anxiety and depression in teenagers comes from is from addiction. So that's a known link that's been well established in the research, which is addiction equals anxiety equals depression. It's a a spectrum. Uh, But... 
the stats on addiction have been going in the opposite direction. So all the stats on the things which right. are traditionally addictive, smoking, you know, smoking alcohol, booze. all that sort of thing, tell us that Gen Zs, which is anyone born after 1995, are less likely to do that than their parents were. In fact, half as likely to do that as their parents. So despite all the stories about horrible teenagers doing horrible things, the reality is they do a lot less of it mm. um, than their parents did. Mm. Uh, in fact, any addiction that required you to be physically present, uh, Gen Z don't do. Uh, so that's, that's all. That's drastic, right? That's a drastic drop. <laughs> that's a massive drop. So yeah. even though we've had years and years and years of public health campaigns trying to curb underage pregnancy, underage drinking, smoking, all that sort of thing. It had no effect whatsoever. And then in 2010, it all suddenly went into reverse. Yeah. Just bang, out of the blue. No particular reason for it. Uh, and what I put forward in this book is there is a reason for it, yeah. which is that they now can get addicted for free much more easily mm. than their parents ever could because there is software which is explicitly written to do exactly that. Uh, and so instead of it just being the adventurous few in the population who became addicted, developed anxiety, developed depression, mm. uh, et cetera, uh, we now are undertaking a brand-new social experiment where every single child is exposed to addiction every minute of the day, which is what these apps are doing. And why did that happen in 2010? Well, that's when the iPad came out. Yeah. So now in the last 10 years we've invented portable, on-all-the-time internet and devices capable of accessing uh, usually free apps that are engineered for addiction. Mm. I love the way you describe um, the way. So a few things I love. First yeah. of all, I call it GABA, but you call it GABA. Is that oh, right? yeah, I'd probably mispronounce it wrong. No, it is I GABA. think you do it wrong. No, oh, no, I, I think it is GABA. I was driving here going, <laughs> oh, my God, I said GABA wrong. Uh, uh, so I, I didn't know that there was GABA suppression for yes. your teenage years. So GABA's... Oh, you can describe this so much better than me. GABA is a suppressor. So yeah. it's, it's, its general role is suppression. Uh, in addiction, it suppresses dopamine and, yeah. and promotes the production of serotonin, which makes us feel good uh, yeah. and happy and not calm. depressed and yeah. calm. Um, so dopamine is the thing that puts us on edge, uh, yeah. makes us ready to receive a reward. Uh, and so high dopamine levels equals anxiety. Uh, so uh, GABA shuts down dopamine. Mm -hmm. It also suppresses the hormones which allow us to commence puberty. Mm -hmm. Uh, so otherwise we'd commence puberty immediately after birth, mm -hmm. uh, but GABA stops that happening. Mm -hmm. In order for puberty to start, you have to take the braking system off, which means turn off GABA. Uh, so adolescents from the start of puberty through to early 20s uh, have lower GABA than either children or adults, and which is why all addictions, you look at all the addiction statistics, all the research on addictions, most people who become lifelong addicts to anything First start when they are a teenager. Teenager. And yeah. straight after I read this, I called, uh, I said to my boyfriend, when did you start smoking? So he doesn't <laughs> smoke now, but yeah. he, he was like, oh, I started when I was a teenager. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, my God, this all makes so. <laughs> Well, the, no, it's it. not just him. The, the stats are really, really clear. The peak time for addiction is teenage years, and there's a really good biochemical reason for that. The system that would stop that happening is turned off. Right. <laughs> now, the other thing that I love that you go into, and you you definitely go into it again in Brain Reset, but you talk about, um, I think you describe it as like danger porn mm -hmm. and then approval porn yes. and how they work with males versus females. Yeah, Can you so go into that? Danger porn is engineered for males, uh, which is... Males, because of testosterone, which they have levels, you know, hundreds of times higher than females. Uh, I mean, interesting side story is that 
female, all humans are female. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, males are the four-wheel drive version that were created by females because they needed the dangerous stuff done by disposable humans. Um, so um, that's the biochemical yeah. version of yeah. things. Um, that's, that happens because of testosterone. It's the thing that does it. Uh, and uh, it suppresses uh, our receptivity to oxytocin, which is our socialisation mm-hmm. hormone. So males are much less concerned about whether people like them. Uh, yeah. and and much more concerned about what other people think, yes. both about them and in general. Uh, so, And that's the testosterone suppressing the oxytocin. We'll mm-hmm. come back to oxytocin when we talk about female addiction. Yeah. But with the males, all that testosterone also does a couple of other things. It suppresses impulse control. Mm-hmm. Um, so it means that they are much more prepared to take risk, uh, mm-hmm. not because they see risk and say, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a risky kind of dude, I'm going to take it. It's because they don't see the risk. So yeah. they look at a, a female and a female can look at the same situation. The female will see the risk and make a proper yeah. assessment. The male doesn't even see the risk, can't imagine that there is even a risk to be contemplated. And that's why when you look at, say, injuries, uh, males have three times the rate of injury as females. Yeah. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not that there's anything strange about that. It's that the males are doing things that they just don't perceive there to be a risk of. Mm. And females are looking at that and saying, I will not do that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so that risk, that love of risk, mm. in a sense, um, means that if you want to addict a male, what you have to do is simulate risk for them. You have to give them danger. Um, now, the oldest form of that simulation is just plain old ordinary gambling, mm-hmm. which is a risk simulation, mm-hmm. which is sometimes you win, most of the time you won't, but you're, you're taking risks. Uh, and the, the the thrill of, of winning or just not losing uh, is is a reward enough for doing that. So that's what gambling is. Take the lessons we've learned over millennia about gambling, amp up the speed that you can do it and turn it into a visual simulation of real-life risk, such as fighting people in a 3D simulation game, uh, and you've got what I call danger porn, mm. which is a high-speed simulation of risking your life thousands of times a day. Mm. Uh, perfect for males. Absolute, uh, you know, addiction uh, designed to addict males. I've heard uh, you talk about a game called Fortnite. Yeah, so Fortnite's one that, that the younger males really, really yeah. indulge in, and it's it's just a cleaned-up version of what you often see in the older ones. So if you see a uh, more traditional uh, online fighting games, you know, yeah. people getting their heads blown off, blood all over the screen, blah, 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 blah. Mum mm. walks in the room when a 14-year-old is playing that uh, and it's going to be turned off, you know, <laughs> straight away, <laughs> straight away yeah. just, you know, the end. Yeah. Um, so what the developers of Fortnite did is cleaned up and cartoonified it. Um, yeah. So it's the same thing but it looks like a cartoon. Yeah, because you've got to kill, didn't you say, 99 other you've people? You've got to kill 99 other people. Yeah. So you get, you get dropped on an island with 99 other people and the winner is the one who kills all the others. Wow. So, <laughs> Sounds like Hunger Games, but yeah. 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 And well, you know, and so there's a lot of killing. Yeah. Uh, and you can do it lots and lots. You know, games last 10, 20 minutes. Um, so you're, you're putting your life at risk and most of the time, as you would imagine, unless you're particularly good at this, you will die. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sometimes you won't and sometimes you will last a little bit longer. And that variable uncertainty is a key factor in addiction mm. uh, and it's one that's applied in the one, the stuff that's written for females, uh, which takes advantage of the other side of this coin, which is they are very sensitive to oxytocin. Mm. Uh, so it's which the maternal is, stuff, right? Well, it, it's all, it, it is, but it's also what, it's also what you get when you socialise with yes. other humans. So when you get into a group with other humans and do things that they like and they show you they like it, 
um, you get a shot of oxytocin. So suddenly you feel good because you're doing things that other people like. Um, so it, it keeps, it's like group glue. It binds humans together. And females are extremely sensitive to it. Um, teenage females are even more sensitive to it simply because they don't have the shutdown of the GABA being released. So, so oxytocin promotes dopamine hit, makes it addictive. Mm. Now, the trouble is that in real life, it's very, very hard to do that on high-speed simulation. I mean, you can be as social as you like, but you're not going to be going out, you know, a thousand times a day, meeting new groups of people, having them, like, do things do things that they like and telling you that they like. It just, just doesn't happen. Mm. Um, but what the social media people have done is create a fantastic simulation mm. of that, which you don't have to do any of those things. Fake fame, fake like, yeah. Yeah, just whack a picture up and count the likes. Every one of those likes gives you a hit. Uh, and so that's one side of the addiction. The other side of the addiction is the doom scroll, which uses something called this variable certainty, variable reward schedule, which is what the boys are getting with whether they lose mm. or not. Um, the variable reward schedule is the, the platform knows what you want to see, but it doesn't give it to you every time. Mm. So it shows you one thing you want to see, then it shows you four or five things you don't want to see, and then it'll show you something you do want to see. And then it'll show you 10 things that you don't this want to the see. Uncertainty That's thing, right. right. So you don't nev- you'll never know whether the next thing that comes up on the screen is actually going to be something you really, really want to see. Uh, and that significantly increases the amount of dopamine released in using the product, which is why people will sit there for hours doing it. This is where the addiction stuff is. That's right. Mental. Like, and I'm look, I'm so excited to talk to you about addiction because I'm that person that'll be like, why have I got my phone in my hand and why was I scrolling? And I'm working on a manuscript at the moment and I actually put my phone in a completely different room yeah. so that it just has no impact on and it, and otherwise it just steals time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all addictions steal time. That's their biggest danger is they steal time. Wow. Every, every addiction sucks up time that you would other be, otherwise use spending doing something productive. Do you know as you were beginning to talk about like um, testosterone and risk and stuff, I was like, I've been skydiving. I think I must be like into the risk stuff. And then you were talking about the game and how it was like them killing people. I was like, oh, my God, that feels horrible to me hearing that. So for a second I thought I must be like really into risk and now I'm like, oh, maybe not. Okay, we have to talk my all-time favourite book. Oh, yes. And I need to tell you about how it came into my life. So Taming Toxic People has been out for a little while now, hasn't it? Yes, it has, yeah. But the way that it came back into my life was I interviewed a crime fiction writer on this podcast. Her name is Candace Fox. She's wonderful. But I was so fascinated to get her on the interview because she'd interviewed a serial killer on death row. Uh-huh. Um, in the 70s there was a, two killers called the Toolbox Killers in America. Yeah. And um, anyway, she had written to him when she was in America. She went to the high... Um, security prison in, I think, San Francisco, had to, like, pass all these, you know, guards, whatnot. She got put in a room with him, a glass room, nothing between them, and she called it like a shark cage. Yeah. There was a sniper on him the whole time. Right, right. So, yeah, okay, right, and I and I said, I've just got to ask. It's so fascinating to right. hear about um, his mind. And she said, well, first of all, he wouldn't name his victims. He Mm. numbered them. Right. And she said the bit that really got me, and this is what gets me onto psychopaths, even though though I know you're not writing about criminal psychopaths, it just made me go, oh, this carelessness of another human being. Yeah, yeah. 
And she was talking to him about one of his um, victims. Her name was Andrea. And she said, and he said, oh, you know, V3, victim Mm. three. And she goes, don't you mean Andrea? And he just flicked his hand and went, oh, yeah, her. Yeah. yeah. And and she said the fact that he was just so careless Mm. about, and and then he turned to her and said, you know what, in my whole life, I think he was in his 70s on death row, he goes, I've only been bad for five months. (laughs) And she said just the way he was able to have no, like, so willing to take on no responsibility yeah. for the bad stuff he'd done, said willingly would lie and, mm. and, and he said to the point that it felt like he was kind of coaxing her to be his next probably girlfriend of five, he had yeah, five yeah, yeah. on the go. And I and she described him as a sociopath. Yeah. But when I read Taming Toxic People yeah. uh, and I hear you describe that psychopath, sociopath, narcissist, yeah. bully, it's all the same ballgame, right? That's right. It's all the same thing. Talk to me about Taming Toxic People because this was the book that as I was reading it, so yes, I just had that incredible experience hearing about a real-life serial killer and then I was reading about the psychology of, yes, not criminal psychopaths but psychopaths. I was turning the page going, oh, my goodness, this is so fascinating to me. And then, and I know I'm positive other people have said this to you, as I'm flipping the page I'm like, oh, I've got one of them in my life. (laughs) Most people would know one. Uh, Absolutely, right? the the fundamental defining thing is they have a complete lack of empathy. Uh, yes, so, totally. Uh, empathy is that thing that makes us want to uh, work with other humans. Mm. Uh, it it helps us work with other humans because it it forces us to care what happens to them. Mm. Uh, otherwise. We couldn't care less what happens. And and it's defined by the golden rule, which you find in every single yeah. religion or major theory of thought of humans, every philosophy, which is do unto others as you would have done to you. Mm. That's empathy. Right. That is have concern for other humans. Don't do things to them that you wouldn't want done to you. Yeah. And most of us are wired that way. Our brains are wired that way. We can't help it. It's automatic. It's an evolutionary advantage because it enables us to work together with groups of strangers mm. um, and be able to trust them. And uh, that's so also how we how we survive and how if we... If we didn't do that, we couldn't. Yeah. We, we wouldn't be able to trust another human being because we would always be suspicious that they were about to kill us in our sleep. Right. Uh, so, right. Totally. Um, so <laughs> we know that every other human is wired like we are and, and that they won't do unnecessarily unpleasant things to us because it hurts them to do that, yeah. and it does, uh, and that's what empathy is. And that's the defining feature of a psychopath is they don't have it. Both that, criminal and normal. Any, don't, there's yeah. no point dividing them up. They're, it's just their circumstances which divide them. They don't care about other human beings. They couldn't mm. care less about them other than as tools to be manipulated. Yeah, the opening of this book, you yeah. talk about a tiger kind of like yeah. sizing up its meal, whether yeah. it can be bought. And I was like, oh, my oh my God, I'm, I'm a sheep right now. <laughs> but uh, one thing I really, really love, and it's really good for people listening going, okay, if I've got one in my life, what are the character traits? And you have this wonderful list of character traits. Yeah. Charming. Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. The, initially, they will be the most charming person yeah. you've ever met. Um, you get sucked uh, in. Until the point where they figure out 
either that you are sucked in and therefore there's no need to bother anymore uh, or you're of no value to them. Mm. And once again, there's no need to bother anymore. Mm. Uh, and then they'll just switch it all off. So, so the charm will just vanish. Um, they'll just they'll be rude to you, they'll be aggressive to you, uh, they don't need to be nice to you anymore. But up till that point, they are extremely talented at reflecting back to you what they know you want to hear. Um, they are really, really good at reading people. They have yeah. to be good at reading people because unlike every other human, they can't sense what people are feeling. Yeah. Um, that's a key part of empathy is that you can sense another person's emotions. You, you know, it's not magic. You're reading lots of things about the way they present. Mm. And you, because you can experience those emotions, it means something to you. Yeah. Um, because a psychopath can't, um, they can't do that. And they can't yawn, right? There's the yawn test There's the or yawn test. Right? Well, so, so a human, most normal humans, when they're in a room with people and one person yawns, they'll all yawn mm. um, because that's a transfer of that feeling. Mm. Uh, and and I suspect people even hearing this are yawning right now. I know, right I'm, now. I'm controlling my, I'm swallowing <laughs> as much as I can not um, to yawn. But a psychopath doesn't. Um, yeah. And, and um, well, it doesn't mean they won't. They, they'll see everyone else yawning and they'll say, oh, I guess I'm supposed to yawn. Um, but... It isn't second nature to them. And that's where they'll often slip up is uh, not in the yawning but in, in failing to automatically respond. Humans automatically respond to emotions, strong emotions, particularly other humans being hurt, watching a television show, um, seeing a disaster yeah. on television, something like that. People respond and that's why charities that put up donations about things like that at that time do so well mm. um, because they respond. Mm. Uh, psychopaths look at that and say, oh, my God, it's affecting the humans. Um, I guess I'd better pretend to care. Uh, mm. And so a lot of their life is spent pretending to care um, so that nobody catches them out. Being weird is, is, is how it would be perceived um, by normal humans. And you've described it as you can sometimes feel like it just feels a bit off. It feels off. The timing's yeah. off because yeah. because with humans it's an automatic thing. You can't. You don't even think about it. It's just it, it's happening. Um because a psychopath has to calculate, oh, I'm supposed to feel this yeah. or at least look like I feel this, that yeah. calculation gap um, feels off. Mm. Uh, it feels like the timing's slightly wrong. Or you'll catch them just not reacting at a time when you would have hoped or when people would normally react. You know, so they'll they'll do things like um, you might say something really sad, like you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I've just, I'm late, I've just come from my mother's funeral. Now that I didn't have that good of excuse this morning, David. <laughs> but, but that but that would be that would evoke an emotional yeah. response in the person, yeah. and, and they you know offer you some sort of condolence or something. Yeah. A psychopath might just breeze through that and think, oh, it's okay, you didn't inconvenience me. Mm. You know, so sort of that'd be what they'd be thinking without paying any attention to the reason why you were late. Um, yeah. And because they have no automatic response to that, so they yeah. actually have to stop and think. Oh, I guess she's going to be sad about that. She's going to expect me to say something nice about that. So. Yeah, yeah. It's so when you start to, and that's why reading this book, I was in, I was in a situation where there was just someone I was working with, and I was mm. like, had an inkling. Yeah. But as I was reading the book, I was like, oh, all, it was almost like I was waking up to this. Um, mm seeing these social cues that were almost being missed. Yeah. And then every now and then there'd be an outburst, like a weird, unexplainable. It's usually a way to descri to disguise and distract. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's not that they really passionately feel anything. It's just you're on to something about them and they can distract you with an outburst. Yeah. 
How amazing is David Gillespie? Do not worry. There is more to come of him next week. We talk more about psychopaths and then we get into his brand new book, Brain Reset, which tackles addiction, anxiety and depression and why it's so prevalent at the moment. Uh, I can't wait for episode two. I really hope you love it and I really hope you enjoyed this episode as well. You know the drill. Give it a like, subscribe, comment if you like it, share it with your mates because the more people that listen to this pod, the better. Big love. That's a wrap on another episode of Fearlessly Failing. As always, thank you to our guests. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Yummo Lollaberry. This potty, my word for podcast, is available on all streaming platforms. I'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and comment. And of course, spread the love.